0: What do we do after the fires, the floods, the pandemic?
1: We live in a crisis-rich environment.
0: How do we learn and prepare for next time? My name is Will Small and this is Olivia Wolfe.
2: We believe stories are one of the most powerful learning and evolutionary tools we have. And this,
3: this orange glow is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, this is not good.
2: So we've listened to people's stories about disaster recovery, community resilience and mental well-being.
0: From firefighters to clinical psychologists there was a family that were actually um, protecting their house and they actually gave up their, their christmas lunch small business owners to communities who have experienced loss and communities that have survived together it's not
2: often that people intentionally go out of their way to get to know their neighbours these days these are conversations about what has happened what may happen how we can prepare for the future. It was an ordeal that we'll never forget.
0: This is Emergency Ready Now. This podcast is presented by Central Coast Council and lead by Story, and jointly funded by the Commonwealth and the New South Wales State Government under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. The views expressed are the opinions of the individuals interviewed. Please be aware these topics may be sensitive, particularly if you have personally been affected by bushfires. If you need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. There is power in numbers, as the old saying goes. This is even more accurate when we're faced with some of the toughest disasters and crises. In times of trouble, what if running a high T in your local community could be as important as your fire safe plan? We spoke to Fiona Sewell about living in a crisis-rich environment and how social connectedness and inclusion is the glue that helps us work towards a better future after things like bushfires, floods and pandemics.
2: Fiona's wisdom comes from her expertise as the Senior Partner and Operations Manager of Recovery Ready Communities, Inc. and her extensive work with the community-led Ready to Go Disaster Resilience Programme. Have a listen to our conversation with Fiona, in which we discuss standing on the shoulders of giants, disaster sleeper cells, and how to strengthen the communities we are already a part of. Let's go. You work at a high level in the disaster resilience and recovery space in Victoria. Um, Would you be able to paint a picture of what that has looked like for you and what are some of the disasters and crisis events that you have witnessed during that time?
1: There's a a phrase that I've been plagiarising now for close on 10 years that uh, one of our local government people used to say and that is that We live in a crisis-rich environment, Mm -hmm. and and it's very apt in that if you look at our landscape, um, we are extreme bushfire dangers. We're quite highly populated because we sit in that urban fringe now. We didn't used to, but we do now. Um, and our storms move through intensely we don't do campaign fires that are prolonged our fires we have minutes of you know hours if we're lucky but usually minutes warning Um, and we have a road system that means that some of those crises can be a single incident that has a catastrophic effect on local families and local schools so when we sort of look at the bigger picture crisis has become something that's a part of our, our normal mm. and, and it's often not unless I really need to think distinctly around it that that is clear. So if I, you know, I look back to what was going on in 2009 and the last time that our local area had catastrophic fires were the Ash Wednesday fires. But our communities have changed radically in that timeframe frame. And we really have quite a small population left that had that knowledge that comes from those times and really understood neighbour to neighbour what were we going to be experiencing if something major goes through. And I think back to the Friday before Black Saturday, I was doing a bit of work for RMIT here in Melbourne and it was a project that was looking at how volunteers fill those roles of community education and how much work was... Sitting on the volunteers' plates to have that education component filled. Um, and that project was happening on the other side of Victoria. So my Friday was talking to the participants that we were going to interview um, and, of course, the next day everything changed. Our whole state changed, our systems changed, and by the time we were meeting in person, same uh, participants that were being interviewed had been deployed into some of the hardest hit areas at our end. So, you know, I sort of often look back at that Friday afternoon and I know we knew that something not good was coming. We knew that the the conditions themselves were going to give us very little room to move, that even what we'd have considered to be a fairly small event was going to accelerate far more quickly than we'd been. Manage. but I think that you know we, we talk about resilience as a very broad stroke but understanding resilience means we have to understand trauma
3: mm. and
1: often we don't look at that dark side until something catastrophic has happened and and like you know I still look back at that Friday afternoon and that we all had that sixth sense that something big was coming our way. But you don't know what that's going to be. You don't know what it's going to look like until you're able to see it in the rear view mirror. And that took years when it comes to the Black Saturday event. Um, by the time an event of that scale and that intensity is unpacked, it's often years later before we're able to really understand um, what happened and why it happened. And what we can change next time and what we can't change next time. Um, But those learnings, and I think the resilience that comes out of it's always a rear view learning. Mm. It's not something that we can easily forecast in the sort of detail that we can when we do it in hindsight.
0: Yeah, I think that's so, so true. And I wonder if, um, you know, 2020 obviously is going to be in our collective consciousness for many years to come. And there are many things that we're going to continue to, to process and uh, learn from um, that are going to come up years from now, like you're saying. Um, I'm just wondering with some of those experiences, you know, thinking back to um, 2009 uh, and, and now thinking about parts of Australia where, where we are here, for example, in New South Wales on the central coast with the, f- the fires at the beginning of the year, are there things that you take from those years of processing and learning in your context that you think would be worth people thinking about, you know, how how we continue to reflect um, and, and learn from what has happened, you know, at the beginning of 2020?
1: I think that, you know, when I look at the the scale and the duration of the fires over this last season, I think that that we when we start to unpack just the scale, we really have to understand the diversity of communities that were impacted. You know, and when we look at the duration of it, that's an incredibly long-running emergency, and we as a as a species, that's draining for us. And I, you know, I look at the recovery outcomes of the impacted communities in two thousand and nine, um, and I think it's a very poignant time for you guys to be doing the podcast at this moment in time, because for a lot of those communities even without COVID, we would know that they're probably only just starting to be able to catch their breath on what, even without COVID, would have been an incredibly stressful year and a very difficult year. Um, And a year in which we could predict that there would be one small crisis after the next, after the next for them, because there are so many layers to recovery. Um, And I think that, you know, for a lot of those communities, the level of trauma that they've experienced will quite possibly only just be starting to surface now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that one of the, the things that is significantly different in terms of what's happening for those communities now under the blanket of COVID is that in the absence of such a pervasive threat like COVID, where it's impacted everybody, truly everybody, um, it's not unusual that we'll forget that those communities have been impacted. The people on the ground that are working with them, the communities themselves, the services that they're having to access, it will stay front of mind for those groups. But it won't necessarily be something that stays in the front of mind of the broader society. Um, and society is often surprised to hear that 18 months later people are only just starting to reach out for psychology support or to find out that two years later people have still not been able to rebuild their houses. Um, and so I think that in many ways I've, both in 2009 and nine and in 2019-20, in some ways I hold my breath for those communities. It's probably the most honest answer that when we saw what happened to the nearby rangers in our areas, knowing what we know living in Ash Wednesday country, we held our breath for them, knowing that society was going to move on that the workload for them was really only just starting and that they did have years ahead of them to get back to a place where there was a, a new normal. And, you know, where new normal is another phrase that in COVID we're, we're using extensively, but a new normal in a bushfire context is um, it's not subtle. New normals mean having to rebuild schools. It means having to bury neighbours. The, the context of what becomes the new normal can be really quite heart-wrenching. And hiding in amongst that, we always, always find these incredible stories of coping mechanisms, of survivalist um, success stories of people who had had no reason prior to the event to understand the level of strength and the depth of capacity that they actually had to thrive in the face of that sort of adversity. Um, And it's often not until around about now and over the next couple of years that we'll start to get a really clear insight and that those individuals are going to be able to start to get some insight into just how well they've actually responded to what is inevitably um, a horrific event. And we don't know that we have those skills. We don't know that... Um, We have those leadership gifts. There are people that will have emerged as a result of the trauma um, that have provided profound leadership, often when they least expected it. Um, So I think that, you know, looking at what does the future look like for those communities, the future will look like something a little bit different to what the past did, Um, but over time, Things that were familiar to them will will re-establish themselves. And and they will find, they'll find a new joy, they'll find a new sense of purpose, they'll find a new sense of place. Um, And hopefully, as time goes on, the the lessons that they learn will go on to contribute to the bigger giant. Um, And I think that we're facing a, a future where those events are going to keep happening. And the things that the New South Wales communities are doing right now to put themselves back together will go on to be learnings that will help the next community put itself back together too.
2: And did you have any stories of um, crisis situations like we're talking about that have particularly stayed with you um, or stories of communities thriving after these kind of crises?
1: I think that when I I look back at the differences between the communities that were affected, they were really significant differences. Um, And we have to be a little bit careful in in how we draw our generalisations. But what history showed us was that those smaller communities that were really well connected with one another to begin with recovered really well and they worked together really well and they operated in such a way that everybody was looked after. Now, you know, my my hometown is one of those small connected communities that, in some ways, um, we're a little bit protected by the fact that we don't have competing interests within our community because we're not big enough to have multiple community groups that, that are vying for uh, their place at the leadership table. Some of the, that sort of political influence that can come into play after a disaster is something that we're a little bit immune from um, you know, we what we lack in infrastructure we make up for in people just being really good at what they do within their particular community groups. And I think that they were some of the lessons that came out of the affected communities, that if we already know that a township or an area is disadvantaged, then it's not rocket science for us to expect that they're going to struggle to recover because they were having They were facing adversities and struggles to live their lives without the additional burden of an event like this. Um, And I think that sometimes it is this level of event that can start to really shine a spotlight on what those struggles were. Um, And that's certainly one of the things that comes out very strongly, not just in what we experienced in 2009, but you can map that right across disasters globally. Those that are already marginalised or are already vulnerable always um, have poorer outcomes when it comes to recovery. They have poorer outcomes in surviving the immediate event. Um, And I think it's something that we, you know, we look at the role of prevention and sometimes prevention isn't just about forest management. It's not just about having well-resourced agencies. And those things are really important. But, you know, sometimes it is as simple as how connected are the lonely and the isolated in any given community, regardless of the population? Because from that measure, I can give you some insight into how affected that person's going to be in even a relatively low impact emergency, because their coping skills are already under duress, their resources are already minimized. Um, And I think that, you know, when we look at prevention alongside us looking at it from a policy and procedural perspective, we need to really put some emphasis on social connectedness, on social inclusion, on what, what, What are we expecting those more vulnerable members of the community, regardless of whether it's um, vulnerability driven by age or by gender or by cultural implications? It may be around their abilities. Um, Understanding those vulnerabilities before the event and focusing our prevention tactics around strengthening up those areas and those gaps makes a huge difference to how well that community overall is going to be able to recover into the future. Um, and I think that the more that we experience disasters of the scale that we have in the last 11 years or so, the more that that starts to really come to the forefront in, in the role of it. It's those sorts of things that's the actual glue.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point and definitely, like you said, one that is um, easy to overlook uh, when, when thinking about, you know, disaster recovery and preparedness and
1: I think we have to remember that you know the the concept of disasters is by nature traumatic Mm. and us being in you know you know I look at the landscapes in New South Wales I look at the type of risks and threats that you have come through up there Um, and and for us in Victoria as well we just cannot maintain a healthy mindset that is constantly hypervigilant. And and if we did, you know, at at the risk of of being um, judgmental is probably the wrong word, but I think we have to unpack what does it mean if we're dealing with personalities that can remain excited about the idea of something horrific taking place, that that's not okay. Now, you know, there is something, and and we see this in all sorts of community initiatives. I think we see it in the environmental movement. We certainly see it in emergency services. There is something, and we definitely see it in politics, but there is something that is um, almost seductive about the idea of being the one who's going to save us all. Mm. And we have to be very, very careful around either fueling that mentality or, worse yet, actually creating it. Um, And, you know, I, I, I look at what does it take for group dynamics to function really well. It takes an understanding that no one person is going to be the rescuer. And it won't matter whether we're talking about the event itself, whether we're talking about that first 72 hours before any services can get in and help us, and that's usually a conservative estimate. In many cases, it will be weeks before we can get roads clear enough for people to get in, or whether we're talking about short and long-term recovery. Those really good, healthy, thriving outcomes always come about because it was the, the sum of the parts, not the whole, um, and it was that diversity being in there. I think that looking at what groups are trying to achieve when they're only just forming now, um, I, I have a, a little hit list of advice that I give those groups. Um, so the first is you need to be strategic. You need to, we can't be all things to all people. So if that group has formed because they want to have an effect on prevention, then focus on prevention, focus on what that local, those local risks are. If the local risks are storm or flood um, as the priority, then the next piece of advice is you need to be connecting with your local SES because they're the ones who really understand how that landscape behaves when it's being inundated by that threat. If you're dealing with a landscape that you know is more prone to high-risk bushfires, then you need to connect with your local services. Now, small brigades are managing a massive workload before an event takes place. So some brigades will happen to have somebody that's available to be able to help with that. Some won't, but your regional services do, and, and there are ways of doing that. For those groups, don't operate in isolation. Don't be your area's best kept secret is is my advice on that one. Um, I think that making friends with the people who are going to be responsible for helping you if you are impacted is really, really important. The more that you can build those relationships before they're needed, the better. And I, I know that certainly in areas like us where we're a fairly small town, we're a bit suspicious of outsiders. So for us to be trying to develop relationships of trust and mutual respect when we've already been impacted is so much more difficult than being able to meet those various departments and agencies and services on our own terms and to have already had that conversation with them that says, yes, my nearest large town is absolutely going to need 25 pellets of nappies and baby food, but we don't we need six trucks of livestock feed and we don't need the nappies or the baby food and if we do, we won't need much. So being able to just really have that mutual understanding of what each other's needs and what each other's limitations are. So I think that the last thing that the groups um need to keep on their hit list is what are their opportunities to help to play a role in myth busting and by myth busting if you ask the average person on the street what's going to happen to them if their house burns down and 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 their area is impacted if they've never been through an event before they're going to hold some ideas that seem reasonable but just isn't what what the reality is once you're trying to overcome sort of logistical implications that you get with a high-impact event. Um, One comment that was made in our town, and made by someone who's, you know, quite worldly around emergencies and, you know, very much a long-term resident, she had truly believed that whoever the poor police officer is that's manning the roadblock, will be the one that will be providing their own personal mobile phones and that's how our whole town is going to communicate with the outside world. Now, lovely as the thought is, it's not how it's going to run and I think some of the most damaging things that happen after an event is that people find this out the hard way and by then it's actually insult on injury in, in the, the most true sense. Um, If that learning and those um, ideas can be cleared up and people can go into that event with a really realistic understanding of what can the services do for them, what can't emergency services do for them, what will local government relief and recovery staff be able to do, but what won't they be able to do, then I think it enables the group and it enables the communities they represent to make really informed decisions about how they're going to manage themselves and their family and their community in the event of a high-impact emergency. Mm. Uh,
0: There's lots of wisdom that you've shared throughout this conversation, Fiona, and um, definitely lots of things that people can think through in their context. One of the themes that I'm really picking up is Um, the importance of not doing any of this in isolation, whether that's as an individual trying to come in and be a rescuer or even as an isolated group, you know, not working with other groups. Uh, It sounds like there's just this kind of general theme of needing to be um, highly um, relational and focused on working in a team sort of headspace. Um, But on the flip side, we do bring um, ourselves as an individual into those teams and groups. And I'm wondering... As we kind of draw near to the end of our conversation, um, you know, we would, we would hope that this podcast gives uh, listeners who are individuals maybe some things to do to kind of work on their uh, resilience tool belt or, or kit, um, things that they might be able to do to become part of a community that's functioning in the kind of healthiest way, um, you know, thinking about the landscape of, of you know, the, the modern world and some of the crises that we will continue to face. So I'm just wondering if you have um, some things that you've got in your own individual kind of resilience kit um, or some some practices or or things that you would recommend that people listening might um, do to become a more resilient individual that they bring into those spaces.
1: Oh, that's such a good question. I think um, I think that self-care is something that we often don't really think about until we're already struggling. Um, It's just the, you know, if we're pottering along quite happily, our minds don't tell us that we need to take care of ourselves because we're feeling happy and we're okay. Um, And yet it's those same self-care strategies that work for us when we're happy and we're not thinking about it, go on to be some of the really big things that can make a difference once we have been impacted. I think that um, looking at what it's like to be an individual in an impacted community, it can be very hard to hold on and compartmentalise what you need for yourself because you're doing so in the face of such suffering of others and as a species we're very influenced by being um, empathetic towards the suffering of others and in some ways that's what contributes to our burnout because we do, and it can contribute quite strongly to our survivor guilt, is that prioritising and compartmentalising for this day, for this week, perhaps for this month, I actually just need to look after me and mine. But what I'd say is don't let it get to the point where you think you've got to reach for the oxygen mask. You know, take that time and understand that taking that time is not an act of selfishness it's an act of restoration and if collectively we can continue to build that restoration then we will have an unlimited source of energy to keep facing what comes next and the other thing that I would add to that is in and this is probably a COVID learning um, Often we get these messages from the broader world that says that, okay, everything's safe now, we can go back to normal. And what we have to remember is that if we've been doing a high level or a prolonged level of stress, we need to rest before we can dial back up to normal. We can't dial down easily from this, you know, magnitude of stress anxiety fear and threat back to not really thinking about much more than the milk and bread shopping we do need to have uh, a stop between those events and that would lead me to my last bit of resilience advice as we go into a future where we have good reason to believe that these will be more frequent events and they will be more intense events and they will be more diverse events. I think the art in the long term is for us to develop the ability to almost radio frequency, to be able to dial up our level of alertness for the days where the conditions tell us that is the day that you need to be hypervigilant, you need to be paying attention, You need to assume the worst and you need to have already taken preventative actions to protect you and yours. But on those days where the wind is not catastrophic and the heat is not catastrophic and the storms are not coming and the threat is not extreme or, or, you know, starting to move towards that level, I think we need to be very conscious that noticing those days. We live in paradise. We live in one of the most incredible parts of the world and if we learn how to dial up that frequency to be able to respond effectively, to know what to do and when to do it, and we equally develop the ability to dial back down to today is a good day, today is a safe day and today I live in one of the most incredible places in the world and I'm very privileged to do that. Then we can help to counterbalance how much attention we'll need to pay on the few days where it really will be a matter of life or death that we do.
0: Mm. Wow, that is such a helpful image, and just um, yeah, so much in there that I'm going to be listening back to and and uh, continuing to reflect on. Thank you, Fiona, for um, yeah, giving us some of your time and your learnings and and your really um, valuable insights, uh, as we kind of work through, yeah, what the future looks like and how we need to live in the present, um, with an eye both on, on the future, but exactly as you've just said, not missing the day that we have right now. So yeah, really, really grateful. Um, do you have a final sentence, a final word of, um, yeah, just reflection that you would want to leave people with as we wrap up this conversation? Be gentle with
1: yourselves. <laughs> This is a this is a long game. For those of you who have been impacted, this is a long game. Don't forget to rest and don't forget to make you the priority and remember that your community needs you to be at your best. So looking after you is looking after them.
2: I love the reminder Fiona has given us that in the world we're living in right now, full of stress and crisis, that really we're running a marathon and not a sprint. So it's important to be kind to ourselves. We also might feel like we can't make a positive change in our community if we're not wearing a uniform or maybe have a formal part to play in decision-making, but this isn't true. Stephen Hinks is a great example of how you can see a need in your neighbourhood and cultivate real change.
0: Stephen Hinks and his wife Anne live in Kilcare Heights, having moved there in 2010 to enjoy and engage in the beautiful bush, beach and bay that Budai has to offer. Stephen is a disaster recovery chaplain and is involved in his local community through his work with the Rural Fire Service, uh, his work as a sports chaplain for the Kilcare Surf Lifesaving Club and as the founding president of KiliCares. KiliCares is a not-for-profit organisation that provides support to members of the Budai community who may be sick, disadvantaged, elderly, or otherwise in need of special assistance which is not available from existing community services. We spoke to Stephen about his role in creating KilliCares and about how we might set about creating similar positive change where we live. You've been involved in a number of community organisations over time, you know, the Surf Club, the RFS, um, others. I'm just wondering what initially sort of led you to participation in those kind of contexts or to seek out those kind of community engagement spaces?
3: As my faith is real to me and, and really it, it's, it's how I live my life, uh, the, the words that come to mind are, are relevant. I love the church to be relevant so I need to be relevant. Uh, and, and just be authentic and I think God made us for, for relationships. So we have great great neighbors literally here in our home either side and down the back. Uh, and the wider community here is just something that that I wanted to get involved in and and to get to know people and to be able to help out in in different ways. So that's where that comes from. Uh, I think actually I, I joined the RFS maybe before the church I can't remember. Uh, and then the surf club um, were interested in getting a chaplain but I they have um, actually given me the privileged role of being on the management down there as well and so I've been involved with the strategic plan and a few other things and and just opportunities to sit and chat and, and be with people as well as being around for any kind of crisis intervention or whatever work I could do on mm. semi-professionally. Yeah, great.
0: How significant, you know, for you, I mean, you, I'm sure you contribute a lot of value to being in those different organisations and spaces but what does it do for you? Do you get something out of that kind
3: of connection? Yeah, I do actually. I've, I've always needed to watch, you know, if if someone gives me positive news or, or even says thank you or appreciative, I, I think the human ego can get a bit carried away with that but – but for me, it is it is the genuine um, desire to serve people and to to know that there's a you know it, it's not just about me. Now I know that sounds cliché, and and we all want to make a difference. I'm I'm not a big picture make a difference person, but but I do want to um, be with my neighbours literally uh, and and be supportive. And if we can do that through structures like organisations or just loosely around the street you know those that that kind of thing for me is is a is a commitment that is part of my faith so it it's um for me it it's a huge bonus uh mind you as I get older I I'm not as as busy as <laughs> as I have been in the past um and that's all right as well so that would yeah that would be the significance for me yeah very good
0: so as I've had a few conversations with a range of people about community resilience and looking at the Central Coast, which, you know, is communities. Obviously there's lots of places on the coast. But um, I've heard a few times about something called Killy Cares as a bit of a model for community resilience and connectedness. Could you just share the story of what Killy Cares is?
3: Uh, Killy Cares, yes, K-I-L-L-Y and then a separate word. And the title itself, of course, we've got KillCare as part of our – our suburbs here. But um, I, did, I did get to know a couple locally um, and she sadly died of cancer and over the time that I was visiting them um, I got to know uh, her husband as well. And, and interestingly as I was sharing with him after the funeral actually, um, he liked what I was saying about our community and he mentioned someone who's a local business lady who he said I should meet. And so um, her name is Cathy, uh, Kathy Baker, who's a business lady here. And she and I just had apparently – I set up a meeting and we just had a similar kind of vision and I said, why don't we make this happen? So um, I was the one who had a little bit more time to, to draft a constitution and, and we, we got going. But it was really the vision of getting people uh, – my, my wor- words were um, to look after and look out for people. And so, so it was, we, we literally, you know, went through the Department of Fair Trading and Australian Charities and Not For Profits Commission. So all of that was put into place and then it was uh, just about, you know, s- getting people in the community um, to be aware of the vision and come on board. So that's, that's where it started. Yeah, wow. So what does it look like in, in practice now? <laughs> Um, it's it's been a, a really good journey. I've, I've just stepped down after six years as, as the kind of the founding president or whatever you call it, and actually Kathy's taken over. We've still got a, a team around us. Um, but the really good thing in those foundation years was the way people, local people picked up on the vision of helping local people. So, we find in a, in a largely retirement community, we've got some great families as well who help and we help them, but um, people people who are older and, and have finished the kind of work life are really looking to give back into their community. So, I guess we and there's a sense in which we tapped into that in a way that, you know, someone said, oh, well, I can't be a, a lifesaver or I can't be a, a fiery or whatever, but – and so um, we found it was a little embarrassing really because uh, we had a supply of people that outstripped demand. What, what we were trying to do initially and have now done I think is to get word out to our entire community that when you're in need give us a call um, or at least dob someone in because Aussies hate putting their hand up for mm. help. And so it's just the way in which people have picked up the vision and, and got on board that's been really good for us. Oh, that's awesome so in
0: in the same local community you've got people that are able to give and to help doing that, and people that need a bit of assistance are receiving that and yep. kind of is working in a, a lovely little circle by the sound of things, yeah
3: yeah yeah well well, a crucial year, and I can't remember when it was we had three members of our local community um with with cancer that that didn't give them much longer to live and and the way People were mobilised to provide meals and it, it was just a, a, a great way for the community to, to support the family of the people who lost their loved ones in that year.
0: Mm.
3: Uh, and that's kind of the, you know, that's that's a really important thing for our community to know that we've yeah. been doing for each other. Yep. Now you mentioned a moment ago, um, you know, some of the
0: demographics of the community, um, people in, in retirement, you um, Maybe needing a bit of help, maybe having a bit more time to help. You also talked about how people locally really got on board with that vision. I'm just wondering if there are any other factors that you think made it work. Anything else that you could kind of point to that went? This is why it actually um, got off the
3: ground. Um, I I think we we've needed to make people aware, and and we've used different um, formats to to convey this. Um, we've wanted to make people aware that, A, they can help just by being a volunteer on a list and we could give them a call um, and, B, they really do need to dob someone in who needs help. Um, and I think this came to the the fore for us with with COVID. Um, in March 2020, when the lockdown came into place, one of the things that Killy Cares did uh, was – ...to actually call immediately for more volunteers. And we tried to find the people in lockdown... ...who literally needed someone to help them with shopping... ...or picking up scripts and getting them filled... ...or whatever it was. uh, Transporting them. People, you know, who were were even scared... ...to go to a medical appointment or whatever. Now we're mainly talking about elderly and vulnerable people, I suppose. but, But they are the people who who we were interested in finding. but So we had, we had the community volunteering to help those who needed the help. And it, it was just amazing to see over that period of time. Now, one of the other things, I guess, that came out of that was that, um, yes, we expanded our list of volunteers and we try to do things to thank our volunteers just socially every now and then. But... But we do – we were conscious of trying to, to compile a list of of the really elderly and vulnerable people in our community and we've been able to do that. Mm. So that should there be, um, you know, more of a disaster situation, particularly, you know, I mean I've got some older ladies who don't have a mobile phone and they're partially deaf anyway. So mm. um, how do we notify them or, or get to them? Anyway, That's a that's a whole other story but that's the kind of thing that – ...that's helped embed Killy Cares into our community. Mm, yeah, that's great. Um, I'm hearing there a real knowledge
0: of what the local community looks like... ...which is obviously important, you know. It you is, can't yeah. just copy paste one thing from one place to another. You've got to know what the needs are. Yeah. Um, but then it sounds like
3: it's really... Listening to that and responding in the way that is… We've actually had interest in this from from elsewhere. In fact, at McMaster's a a, a group contacted us. They came to, you know, one or two of our things and said, how do we duplicate this? And they've done that, which is awesome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It can be multiplied and and it's already starting. And I I realise in some ways it's a bit ideal because our community… …our little community is really easily defined geographically. You know, Mm -hmm. we're surrounded by water and then a couple of roads in and out. So… And and some communities is not like that. The boundaries are not easy, but but I still think we can. You know, it it's a model that, that um, works. Yeah,
0: that's so good. Um, you kind of just answered this question a little bit by talking about you know that first COVID lockdown. But I was going to ask you if you've got in your mind some kind of disaster or crisis events um, that come to mind, either where you've seen um, the the preparation sort of take place in a, in a positive way that's made a difference or actually the um, responding in the, in the moment um, or kind of the recovery afterwards? Do you have any stories of those kind of community-shaping events um, through
3: disaster and crisis? Uh, I, I think apart from uh, what I've just mentioned about Killy Cares in, in you know, the March – from March 2020 lockdown, um, before that, as you know, a whole state and nation were subject to drought and the fires that started November uh, 2019 and and so devastating for different communities. So um, I was actually on holidays in November 2019 and I got a call from our, our surf club um, administrator and she said um, – we're getting phone calls with these fires from people, particularly older ladies, feeling vulnerable and don't know what to do. Um, so so out of that has come um, a, a, a meeting of leaders from different local organisations, uh, people who have teams around us and committees where – and and channels of communication. So what we've been able to do is – um, that uh, the captain of our local fire brigade, the president of our surf club and the leaders of a couple of organizations including myself from KilliCares, we've we've actually started meeting to to talk about community or resilience in our community uh, and so that's one of the things that that was initiated and uh, we're continuing to meet obviously <laughs> uh, to to put some strategies and structures in place i think. So so that's the kind of thing again that um, it, it just came from that initial situation of people wanting to know what to do in an emergency mm. and here we are now trying to organise ourselves and just see if we can just, you know, generate that calm and confidence in our community by way of preparation and mm. there are ways in which we can do that, you know, that preparing and even helping after a conflict, after some kind of disaster or, or crisis situation.
0: Mm. Oh, it's such a great picture of um, people that, that have a different perspective, you know, organisationally or in terms of what they mm. normally are looking for, actually bringing those perspectives together, sitting at the table together. Yeah. Um, That's having it. Having a more holistic picture of the community. Uh, do you think there are any other kind of key ingredients from your perspective for um, for a community to be resilient and healthy and connected? Any other things that you would see as kind of key pieces that need to be in place
3: um uh my head immediately goes to leadership and it's hard to define who community leaders are aren't they? isn't it so um th- this just happened because of some key organizations and we were trying to literally find places you know that that are now neighborhood safe places or whatever where people can meet i i think our most our biggest vulnerability here is bushfire, of course, and we have we have had some. But but I think leadership is is a key. I, I know there are authorities in place um in in the nation and the state and at local council level. But but if if there are some leaders of local organizations who can put their heads together on this and and work through it as we are starting to do, the next issue um is really the, the dissemination of information to people. So we've taken that very seriously. Obviously the fireys have a pack of information that they give, particularly for new residents, but we want to keep ramping that up and, and fireys have a, a presence in the community with open days and things like that. Um, the the information needs to get out uh, through other groups and organisations. So if you've got groups with, with pretty big you know, databases, you can email information out. But but uh, the group of leaders that we have locally here are, are now, you know, we're putting a website together which, which we don't want heaps of information on it but just the basics for people to go to. Uh, and so we're trying uh, really to be intentional about letting people know that things, this is what will happen and this is what you need to do. Uh, apart from the regular information that the fireys would put out about, you know, having a, a plan and, and all those kinds of things. So that that for us is um, the practical preparedness. I actually think we have a role to play too um, after an emergency or, or crisis. Um, one of the the privileges, um, again, it's a volunteer hat I wear, is I'm part of the Disaster Recovery Chaplaincy Network in Australia. Um that, that chaplaincy role, as with, with most chaplaincies, is, is not a religious role at all. It's a pastoral role because we've had a bit of experience with people's lives in trauma and, and you know, difficulty and so on. Um, and so from the point of view of what we can learn um, about helping people to, to understand what a, a trauma could be like and that there is a road back. ..to what is normal. You know, a lot of people when they have experienced fire, lost their homes, whatever, um, it's actually quite a normal reaction to a significantly abnormal event. Yes. And so just to help people... Maybe it's an education role. Um, uh, to, to be prepared for crisis and trauma and, and those kinds of things, it's, uh, it's important for us to, to have that role, I think. Um, one of the, one of the practical things that we've done in our community, which is also I, I think been noted uh, more widespread, is that we we've Achille Cares really took this initiative. We we have a two pronged attack to helping people with a, a local f- health first aid crisis, um, particularly in terms of CPR and use of a defibrillator. So we've actually we we get an organisation in with a professional trainer to run training sessions. We actually do it in the church hall because that's a, a community hall. And um, we've had over hundred, well, 120, 150 people now just come and do that four-hour session. Yeah, wow. Um, but the second prong of that is that we've 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 got um, some automatic defibrillators placed around our community. There's five or six of them and we we print the addresses regularly in a local community newsletter. Uh, and, again, they're on the website that that we're the resilience group is putting together. Um, just so that people have got more confidence to know, I, I can do this mm. um, and what to do in terms of first aid and CPR and, and so on. So our, our community, I, I hope, is – we've got resilience on, on the agenda. I think COVID has done that. Mm. Um, you know, the government's appointed a, a commissioner. Um, with experience on the fireground and all those sorts of things so so if we can now that it's on the agenda if we can get people thinking in terms of what resilience is mm. and how we can organize as a committee as a community uh, and we've got a little committee of people working towards it mm. then we can we can really um, you know be be as prepared as we can be yeah you know oh, the authorities fair. will manage a crisis that's their role yeah. Um, but part of that management, for example, is coming back to the mobile phone. If people don't have a mobile phone then we need to take a, a, a you know, a responsibility to, to let those people know and go and grab them if we can or whatever.
0: Yeah. No, that's great. A lot of stuff, uh, a lot of stuff there that's very practical, uh, very wise and, um, you know, all of those pieces, a bit of community leadership, the right information, good communication channels, people that can walk people through. Um, trauma and recovery all of that together adds up to something very powerful Um, you mentioned before that you know the model with Kili Cares has already been uh, replicated and is a kind of um, replicable um, model Mm. um, for people in different communities you know the the lens here is the central coast broadly but people listening to this in different spaces are going I'd love to see that happen where I live what are some of the the first steps or the key principles that people might take
3: and use that to develop something like that? I think um, to to get that initial idea, it's like any innovative way forward. You you really need to try and build some momentum. I think that word is important. And that's a matter of, of, you know, if it's just one person, then getting a friend and trying to, to build a bit of interest and beyond that a bit of passion. So, so passion and momentum are a couple of words that I would use. Um, yes, it's going to be something that you do part-time, but it's also got to be something that you really want to see happen. Um, and find find key influencers, people in your community who can, you know, you can win over or don't need winning over uh, and and think this is a way forward. So. Um, I, I think anything can sma- start small I mean we've been telling the next generation always you know chase your dreams and and in this case when it's about community and people looking to look after each other um then we can really move forward with a way in which we can we can build the momentum and and as we found here if you inspire people with the vision and that Maybe that does take someone with the gift of the gab or whatever, but and to put put what you'd like to see on paper uh, or in the digital area, you, you can just um, gradually provide channels then and structures for people to come on board, as we did. As I said, we had so many volunteers initially. After twelve months, I was saying, "Well, I'm a volunteer, but I haven't done anything." So, <laughs> and that's because mm. we hadn't get word out of, of to to create the demand to use the volunteers. Uh, but in terms of um, you know, people again on this resilience theme. Uh, everyone is now catching up on that and, and being aware of it. Bec- and COVID has put that on the map. So mm. I don't know whether that's helpful, but but uh, you absolutely, know, that's, that's where I would say it's it is a replicable model. Um it, It's very easy. I mean, we're always available to be contacted, but you, but you can do this sort of stuff yourself. Mm. Just get an organisation happening. Probably it's best to incorporate it and, and get some talented people together with a range of giftedness, you know, you'll need someone to look after the voluntary finances and all those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, a, a different gift mix to make up your little core team um, and and let it grow from there.
0: Very helpful. Very helpful indeed. Um, all right, last question, Stephen, and I really appreciate all the, all the uh, answers and wisdom that you've shared with me this morning. Um, you know, we talk about the word resilience and uh, resilient communities, mm. you know, one would assume that a resilient community is made up of uh, resilient individuals. So for you, are there practices, habits, rhythms, things in your life that actually enable you to be someone who can
3: contribute that to your community because you've got it humming along in your own life first? Uh, Life for me is not always humming along. There's there's always um, a mini crisis of of some kind, whether it's in the community or – or on the, the wider friendship circles you've got that that you can um, people come to you for, or or you can try and support people. Um, I, I would again come back to my f- my faith here that that again has got to be something relevant and authentic um, and tangible. It, it you need to you know you can't just be another organisation who you know keep to themselves.
2: I am very inspired by Stephen's ambition and I'm so grateful to have people like him in our communities who go above and beyond for their neighbours. This is exactly, I think, the sort of spirit Fiona was talking about. Creating a glue that helps our communities in times of need.
0: What stayed with me from both of these conversations is that organisations can't just exist in times of panic, as Fiona suggested. To depend on a state of alarm at all times is exhausting. Instead, it's about being there for each other when the waters are calm. To use Fiona's metaphor, it's about knowing when to turn the radio frequency up and become alert and knowing when it's better for us to turn it down and let the music fade into the background.
2: What stood out to you from this conversation? One of the key themes of Emergency Ready Now is community connectedness. So if this episode was useful for you, we encourage you to share it with someone and have a conversation about it. You can also help more people find this by giving it a rating and review on Apple Podcast or sharing it through your social media. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can listen to next week's episode as soon as it's released. Until then, let's take care of each other continue to become emergency ready now.